Well, every Sunday uh, during Lent, we have been celebrating the Lord's Supper, and uh, this is uh, this Sunday is the last Sunday we'll be doing that. It's been good for us to remember the, the death of Christ every Sunday as we lead up to His crucifixion, as we think about that as a church, universal church, coming in the church calendar um, this week and His resurrection on Sunday. That's The Lord's Supper is going to come at the end of my message. It's real appropriate for, um, for my message coming at the end. So just prepare your hearts even for that as you reflect upon that. I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Malachi. We're in the beginning phases of our exposition of this book two weeks ago. We saw the main message of the book of Malachi, which came loud and clear. This main message is this, don't forget the Lord. Don't forget the Lord. Through a series of questions and answers, Malachi exposes the various ways in which the people of Israel had forgotten the Lord. And he says, don't do that. Last week we saw how the people of Israel forgot the love of God. And this week we'll see how they had forgotten the honor of God. Appropriately, my message this morning is entitled, Don't Forget His Honor. And indeed, that's precisely what the Israelites had done. They'd forgotten the honor of the Lord. Our text this morning comes really by way of condemnation. It's a hard text. It's a heavy text. And forgetting to honor the Lord, these people were condemned with stinging language from the mouth of the Lord of hosts. And our lesson this morning is to learn from their negative example. If that's what they did and they received condemnation, let's not do that so that we'll receive praise instead. Malachi chapter 1, beginning in verse 6. You can read along with me if you have your Bibles open. Right there. It says, A son honors his father and a servant his master. Then if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my respect? Says the Lord of hosts. To you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, How have we despised your name? You are presenting defiled food upon my altar. But you say, How have we defiled you? In that you say the table of the Lord is to be despised. But when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you present the lame and sick, is it not evil? Why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you? Or would he receive you kindly? Says the Lord of hosts. But now, will you not entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us? With such an offering on your part, he will he receive any of you kindly? Says the Lord of hosts. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the gates that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you. For from the rising of the sun, even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense is going to be offered to my name and a grain offering that is pure. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Let's approach the Lord one last time in a word of prayer. Lord, these words are, are rich. Even I had planned to get through more, as you know. We'll only get through verse 11 today. I pray that you would dig these things deep into our hearts. I pray that we would not be like the Israelites who forgot your honor. People with whom you were not pleased. But I pray, Lord, that we would learn from this and that we would be people with whom you would be pleased. Lord, because that's our goal. Our desire is to please you in all that we do. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, these are some strong words the Lord is speaking to His priests. They really fundamentally deal with the the proper worship of God. In the law of Moses, the Lord had clearly laid out for the priests how it was that they were to offer up acceptable sacrifices to the Lord. And during the days of Malachi, they'd, ins- they'd neglected these instructions. As a result, the Lord was not pleased with their sacrifices at all. I mean, you can even see that there in verse 10. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts. Right there at the very end. Nor will I accept your offering from you. 
As a result, the Lord's not going to accept the offerings for them. Israel was worshiping the Lord in vain. Oh, to be sure, there was activity going on. We aren't talking about God being ignored. There was activity. There were animals who were being slaughtered. Animals being burned. Incense giving off an aroma to the Lord. But the Lord was not accepting their offerings. You think about a few moments of what really was happening. You realize it's pretty tragic. Here the people of, of Israel were making efforts to come to Jerusalem. They, they were bringing their animals, right? Leading them perhaps by a leash of some type. Bringing them. Maybe they lived on the outskirts of Jerusalem. Maybe hiked several miles. Maybe came down from Nazareth or Dan up in the north and came all the way down. Hiked for several days. Brought their animals into the temple, into the courtyard. Presented them there before the priest. Handed the leash to the priest. The priest took the animal, took it out. Slit its throat. Laid it there upon the table, then place that, that beast, you know, maybe, maybe a hundred pound lamb, maybe a several hundred pound cow, and place it upon the altar and burn it up and smoke was going and all these things that they were doing, thinking that they had it right, but they had it all wrong because at the end of the day, their sacrifices were rejected. God was not pleased with their sacrifices. Well, I think about our worship on Sunday mornings. I think about everything that happens. All of you have gotten up this morning. Most of you have probably showered. Some of you maybe not. That's okay. You come into this place. You sought to worship the Lord. We sang some songs. We've heard some children sing. We've reflected upon how the Lord leads us as a shepherd and guides us. And it can easily be the case that God rejects our worship. All this activity doesn't guarantee that God is pleased. It may well be the case. I trust not. I I don't don't think so. But it may be the case in your heart this morning that God looked upon your heart as you're singing the song saying, Oh, there would be one among you to shut your mouth. Because I don't like your praise coming from your mouth. That might just be the case because we worship the Lord. worship Him publicly. We worship Him privately. We worship Him in our families. And my heart is this, is that all the worship that takes place at Rock Valley Bible Church may it not be like these Israelites. My heart is that our worship would be pleasing to Him. As we worship Him, I'd love to put an approving smile on His face. As He looks down upon Rock Valley Bible Church, just to, you can just see the smile of God coming down because He accepts the worship that we bring. And as my sermon title indicates, the key to proper worship is the key to remembering who it is that we worship, that we honor Him appropriately. Our great God is worthy to receive glory and honor and power. Revelation 4.11 Worthy is a lamb that was slain to receive glory and honor and power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and blessing. Heaps of praise come upon our God because indeed He is worthy And not to offer up such worthy worship is a disaster. Look at what came upon these priests as they refused to honor the Lord. They'd forgotten His honor. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. We'll get to these in a few weeks. But for now, suffice it to listen to them. And now this commandment is for you, O priests. If you do not listen, and if you do not take it to heart to give honor to My name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you. There it is. If you don't take it to heart to give honor to my name, I'm going to send the curse on you. And I will curse your blessing. And indeed, I have cursed them already because you are not taking it to heart. Behold, I am going to rebuke your offspring and I will spread refuse on your faces, the refuse of your feasts, and you will be taken away with it. I mean, that's serious stuff. This is serious stuff before the Lord. We aren't dealing with secondary issues. We are dealing with the essentials of how it is we ought to worship the Lord, how it is that it is that He will receive our worship, or how it is that He will reject our worship. He's particular about the ways in which He's to be worshipped, and He will reject our worship that spurns His ways. Let's begin here this morning, my first point. The principle of honor, verses 6 and 7. The principle of honor. I think precisely right here is where the priest missed it. If they had understood the principle of honor, they wouldn't have offered up their faulty sacrifices. I mean, plain and simple, it's like that. If they would have remembered the honor of the Lord, their faulty sacrifices would not have been altered to the Lord, offered to the Lord. And their sacrifices would have been a pleasing aroma to the Lord instead. 
The Lord would have delighted in their worship, would have accepted their worship, would have blessed them, and all would have been well. But that wasn't the case. But let's look at the principle of honor. It comes here in verse 6. It passes directly to us. We read, A son honors his father and a servant his master. Then if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my respect? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests, who despise my name. Malachi here puts up two different types of people and says, okay, how is it these people are treated? The first are fathers and the second are masters. He says a son honors his father. This is a general appeal to what generally occurs in life. A father brings forth a son into the world and the son regularly honors the father. Perhaps especially when they're smaller. He's not appealing here to the command of Exodus 20 verse 12 that children ought to honor their father and mother. He's just talking about kids do honor their father and mother. Particularly as Tom was talking about when they're small. They trust him. They are relational to him. They depend upon their father. And in that way they they honor their father. It's the right thing to do. A son ought to follow his father's counsel. A son ought to... Not speak poorly of his father. He ought to submit to his father's authority. And when he does, he honors the father. When those things don't happen, there's great dishonor, both for the father and for the son. If the son is not acting appropriately before his father, or perhaps the father is totally unworthy of it all. That's the way it is with fathers and sons. A father maintains his position of authority. A son is submission under him. And a son honors him by submitting to him in all these ways. A son honors his father. It's a principle of honor. Verse 2 contains with it an observation of the workplace. A servant honors his master. And again, this occurs in life. You work for a boss and you do what the boss tells you to do. If the boss says, make some widgets, what do you do? You make some widgets. The boss tells you to clean the bathroom, what do you do? You clean the bathroom. The boss tells you to run an errand, you jump in your car and you run an errand. And if you don't do this, you bring disgrace to yourself and to your boss. Boss maintains a position of authority over you. You're to honor him by obeying all of his wishes. Now, in the days of Malachi, the employment situation is a little bit different. There were masters and slaves, but the entire perspective comes, right? The entire parallel is there. Because of the position the master holds of authority over the slave, the slave is to honor the master by doing everything the master tells him to do. A servant honors his master. Now, what we can do now is take these earthly relationships and apply them vertically. As believers in Christ, we have a heavenly Father. And as we have a heavenly Father, we are to honor Him. As created creatures, we have a Creator, a Lord, a Sovereign over us. And we are to treat Him as we would our great Master. God is in a position of authority over us. It behooves us to act in such a way as consistent with the honor that He deserves as our heavenly Lord and Father. And that's what Malachi points out in verse 6. He says, And if I am a master, and I am, where is my respect? He said, If I am a father, and I am, where is my honor? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. As a father of the nation of Israel, God deserves respect. As the Lord master of the nation of Israel, the Lord deserved respect from His people. It's a principle of honor. And I believe here, this is the essence of worship. God is the one who is in a position over us and above us and entirely worthy of all of our worship and praise. He should have our utmost respect. We should follow His counsel. We should speak well of Him. We should submit to His authority. We should obey Him in every way. That's what it means. It's a principle of honor. These things give honor to the Lord as He deserves based upon who He is. He is our loving Lord. And we're to honor Him. But these priests of Malachi's day weren't doing this. They were robbing God of the honor that He fully deserved. The Lord accused them in verse 6 of despising His name. As He despised the name of the Lord, they were defrauding the Lord of the honor that He deserved. As a result, the Lord rejected their worship. And this is the case throughout all of Malachi. The priests in this instance, but other people later, they had no clue that they were missing the honor of the Lord. I mean, look at, look at how even it says in verse 6 here, but you say, these priests, have we despised your name? <laughs> We've not despised your name, O Lord. What are you talking about? 
We've done everything you told us to do. We were in Babylon. The decree came. Says anyone wants to go go to Jerusalem, we went. You told us when there to build the wall. We built the wall. You told us there to build the temple. We built the temple. We started the sacrifices. We called the Levites because they're supposed to sacrifice. We got them. We started the sacrifice. We worshipped them up to you. How have we despised your name, God? The Lord responds, here's how you're despising my name. Verse 7. <clears throat> you're presenting defiled food upon my altar. See, God had given the, the priests clear commands for the requirements of the sacrifices. In Leviticus 22, verse 2, the Lord instructed Moses, Tell Aaron and his sons to be careful with the holy gifts of the sons of Israel, which they dedicate to me, so as not to profane my holy name. They are to be careful in what they offer up. And these priests were not careful. Their sacrifices were defiled. In an offering up defiled sacrifices, they profaned the name of the Lord. And they were clueless again. Another time here in verse 7, we say, How have we defiled you. They didn't even know what was wrong with their actions. They didn't even realize what they were doing was wrong. And, and God says here at the end of verse 7, in that you say the table of the Lord is to be despised. Now it's debatable whether these priests actually said these words or whether God is typifying what they're saying. We don't, it's difficult for me to imagine these, these people coming with sacrifices and, and them saying, oh, the table of the Lord is to be despised. I don't think that was it. I think more was like someone brought a sacrifice and we shall see. Maybe it's blind. It says, well, does this sacrifice work? They say, well, yeah, for God's table, that's okay. Yeah, let's go ahead and bring it in. I think in that sense, they're probably defiling the altar. And we'll see in verses 8, 9, 10, and 11 exactly how they were defiling the altar. It had everything to do not so much with what they're saying, but had everything to do with what they were doing when you distill all of it down, I believe their fundamental problem that they'd forgotten the honor that was due the Lord. They'd forgotten the authority that He deserved. They'd forgotten that those in highest authority deserve highest honor. And I think that if they would have remembered this one simple principle of the honor of the Lord, they wouldn't have presented these sacrifices on the altar. They would have had an entirely different attitude towards the sacrifices they we're offering. If they would have fully understood who God was and the honor He deserved, like in Psalm 93. Remember that psalm? It speaks about how the Lord reigns. He's clothed with majesty. The Lord has girded Himself with strength. Indeed, the world is firmly established. It will not be moved. Your throne is everlasting from of old. You are from everlasting the floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods have lifted up their pounding waves more than the sounds of many waters, more than the breakers of the sea. The Lord on high is mighty. Your testimonies are fully confirmed. Holy, holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. As holiness would fit His house, then they wouldn't offer up these strange sacrifices on the Lord that they did. Because if they'd understood the, the honor of God, they would have offered up right sacrifices. And so the application really comes directly to us, the principle of honor. Do you understand this principle of honor? I've labored this morning again and again to say it. Do you understand the place the Lord deserves in your life? He is the one who has utmost authority in all things. And you then, all of you, are called to give Him your utmost honor and respect in all that you do. And the Bible's clear. First Samuel two verse thirty: Those who honor me, I will honor, and those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. Let me ask you: Do you want God to honor you, or do you want God to lightly esteem you? I don't think there's a soul in this room that says, "Oh, I want God to lightly esteem me." Of course, we want God to honor us, and the way to do that is to honor Him. It's a give and take in some sense. We put Him in the right place and He will bless us. This is how the Bible works. Well, that's the principle of honor. Let's look at my second point. I'm calling it here the practice of honor. Verses 8 through 11. In these verses, we'll see some ways in which we should apply this principle of honor. In these verses, the Lord's going to tell us specific ways in which the priests um, 
dishonored the Lord. And by way of application, we're going to take their negative example, and I'm just going to take those, I'm just going to twist those around and say, well, they did bad, but here, here's the exhortation to do what we're supposed to do. All right, here's my first one. The first thing, bring your best. Bring your best. First half of verse 8. It's what the Israelites failed to do. It's what the priests didn't encourage. It's what we need to do. Verse 8 says this. But when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you present the lame and sick, is it not evil? And we can almost see that. We can almost reason through how evil that is to offer up a, a blind, lame, sick sacrifice. But apart from just intuition, God gave clear directions for the sacrifices that people of Israel would bring up on their altar. There are different kinds of sacrifices for different kinds of sins, different kinds of animals, different kinds of ram, it's a male, it's a female, it's from the flock, it's from the herd, all these different things. But there is one thing that all the sacrifices always had in common, is that they are be offered up without defect. They are to be perfect specimens. Just listen to the number of verses that say this. Leviticus 1 Verses 2 and 3. When any man of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of animals from the herd or the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer it a male without defect. Leviticus 1.10. But if his offering is from the flock of the sheep or of the goats for a burnt offering, he shall offer it a male without defect. If his offering is a sacrifice of peace offerings, if he's going to offer out of the herd, whether male or female, he shall offer it without defect. Leviticus 3, verse 6. If his offering for a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord is from the flock, he shall offer it male or female without defect. And I've got a slew of other verses here in Leviticus 4, verse 3, and verse 23, and verse 28, and verse 32, and it goes on in chapter 5 and chapter 6. Time and time again, without defect, without defect, without defect. And later in Leviticus, the Lord clearly defined what it meant to be without defect. He said this, Leviticus 22, verse 21, when a man offers a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord to fulfill a vow or free will offering of the herd, it must be perfect to be accepted, there should be no defect in it. Those that are blind, or fractured, or maimed, or having a running sore, or an eczema, or scabs, you shall not offer to the Lord, nor make of them an offering by fire in the altar of the Lord. I mean, it's clear. The priests knew this full well. They were Levites. They were trained in the law. They're offering up their sacrifices. And yet, what do they do? They didn't offer them up. They knew that the sacrifices would be perfect. And what they do, verse 8 says, they presented the blind for sacrifice. They presented the lame for sacrifice. They presented the sick for sacrifice. Now, let me ask you, why, why do they do this? Because, you know, if anything, I, I can sympathize with these Israelites. I can sympathize with these priests why they did that. I'm not totally un, unsympathetic to them. Why would they offer a, a blind ram to be sacrificed? <clears throat> Why would they bring a lame lamb to be sacrificed? Why would they take an ox that's sick and have it sacrificed? You know, I can think of one word. Economics. It just makes sense. It makes financial sense. If the animal's going to die anyway by being sacrificed upon an altar, why not bring one that's no use to you anyway? Right? I mean, you're not going to use a blind ram to mate and produce offspring because the offspring might be blind as well. And a blind ram is no good because it doesn't graze very well. A lame lamb won't fetch a large price in the market as a large, strong animal might. It's like, not, not worth it to me. You may not even be able to sell a sick ox for fear that you eat the meat might be tainted. They're undesirable to you. So economic sense, give it to the Lord. That's what they were doing. Now it may make perfect sense to you. It may make perfect sense to me. It may have made perfect sense to the priests. But it's dishonoring to the Lord. He's worthy of much more honor than a discarded animal. God is worthy of your best animal. And so the principle comes straight to us. When you worship the Lord, bring your best. Bring your best. And I think an obvious area of application this morning is your giving. It's the most simple and straightforward place to begin. Right? When you place 
your offering in the back box on the table, do you give your best? Or do you give leftovers? When you give to other causes, maybe you give to parachurches or to schools or to missionaries or to other believers in need, like giving of your own self to, to help others in need, do you give your best? Or do you only give your leftovers? I think the Scripture calls to give us the best. If you're going to give an ox, give a perfect ox. That's what it's saying. The Scriptures are clear. To honor the Lord, we're to bring the first fruits, not the leftovers. Proverbs 3.9 Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce. The first fruits. The Lord's a great King. He is worthy of our best. Now, this morning, I'm not placing here any amount for you to give. I'm not saying, hey, here's a standard of what you need to give. I've not placed any formula for figuring out how much you should give. In Israel's day, it was easy. Sacrifices were required to bring. In that day, the, uh, the shape of the gift was, was there. It was set. You need to bring an ox for your sin. And today, it, it varies. And I just want to encourage you, you may only be able to give small gifts to people. And that is fine. The Lord is pleased with you far beyond a huge contribution with others, perhaps. You remember Mark chapter 12, when Jesus was sitting opposite the treasury, he began to observe how the people were putting money into the treasury. Here's Jesus watching the offering box. And he's saying, hmm, what kind of, what are they putting in? And he's watching them, you know. And uh, back in those days, he didn't have checks. He didn't know so much. Maybe they were clanking in a bunch of coins. So somehow he knew by watching these people, the rich, they're putting in their large sums of money, he said. He said many rich people were putting in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which amounted to a cent. Just throws a penny into the offering box. And you remember what Jesus said? He said, truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all of than all the contributors to the treasury. Let me say that again. Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury. For they all put out of their surplus, but she out of her poverty, she put in all she owned and all she had to live on. She gave all she had. And and God was pleased with that. So it's not necessarily even the amount. It's just the, the question is this. Are you bringing your best to give your best to others? As many of you know, our um, family is going to increase by one coming up in um, the end of May, beginning of June. And uh, we had an ultrasound a few days ago, a few months ago, a few weeks ago. I forget when it was, a few weeks ago. And um, they said, oh, it looks like you're having a boy. And um, we said, are you sure? And she said, yes, I'm definitely sure you're having a boy. Now, we hope, we think we're having a boy. And uh, in the process of discussing things with our, our family, one of the things SR said, I thought it was really cute. He said, I'm, I'm excited. Somebody asked him, are you excited to have a, a brother? And SR said, yeah, because I get to give him all my Legos. Right? If you know, you were here last week, you know how precious those things are to him. But that's, he's just given his best to his little brother someday. And he's looking forward to doing that. And he's wanting to do that. And that's what God wants from us. He wants sacrifices that are our best. In 2 Samuel 24, the story is told of the land that David purchased from Arauna, the Jebusite. It's a future site of the temple. There's a plague going on. God told him to offer up a sacrifice. And so he went to this man to offer up the sacrifice. And uh, Arauna owned some land in Jerusalem, right where the Temple Mount is today. And it was a threshing floor and he threshed his wheat there. And there was a day that Arauna was looking out and he saw the king coming. And David was walking to him up to his threshing floor And before he came, he bowed his face to the ground and says, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? And David said to Ariuna, To buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord so I might offer up a sacrifice and stay the plague. Is what it was. And initially initially Ariuna said to David, Everything, O king, Ariuna gives to the king. May the Lord your God accept you. That's a great picture of Ariuna giving everything. Giving his best. This is land. This is threshing floor. But David refused to take it as a gift. He said, no, but surely I will buy it from you for a price. For I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God, which cost me nothing. So David then purchased the threshing floor, sacrificed to it, and the Lord was pleased with it. 
But the principle there was clear. I'm not going to offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God, which cost me nothing. If it costs me nothing, that's no good. And if it's a blind animal, that's no good. I need to bring the best. I have to ask you, what about your giving? Does it cost you anything to give to the Lord? Do you have David's heart here? Maybe you have such an abundance, your offerings to the Lord are like nothing to you. And maybe the things that you give whether it's the church or other ministries or other people, you might be giving blind sacrifices. Because the Lord has no delight in blind sacrifices. He has no delight in gifts that cost me nothing. God says, bring your best. Here's the second thing. Take the test. Take the test. Last half of verse 8 through verse 10. So what the Lord encouraged Israel to do in the second half here of verse 8. He told them to take the authority test. He said this, Why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you? Or would he receive you kindly? Says the Lord of hosts. He told them to imagine taking a trip to see Cyrus, king of Persia, governor of Persia. And imagine yourself, okay, you're going to go back right, to the Persian Empire and you're going to bring an animal with you and you're going to, you're going to present this animal before the Persian governor. Now, in that case, what are you going to bring? Are you going to bring an ox that's blind out of one of his eyes? Uh, are you going to bring a lamb that can't really walk? You know, it's, it's front, front leg, and so it kind of, kind of jumps along like this. Are you going to bring a ram that's sick and that's skinny? You can see its ribs. Is, it, is that what you're going to present to the governor? <laughs> of course not. Right? It'd be an insult to the king to do that. And the conclusion is this. If it would be an insult to the king, how much more an insult to the king of kings? Let's contextualize it a bit. Imagine yourself taking a trip to Washington, D.C. And you've got five minutes with the president of the United States and you want to offer a gift to the president. Um, would you leave him your rusty car? Mr. President, I have this old Chrysler and um, yeah, Chryslers do rest out sometimes, Tim. I've got this old Chrysler, and um, yeah, I know it's kind of it's for you. Would you give the president your old rusty Chrysler? How about this? Would you give the president of the United States your old computer that struggles to run Windows 3.1? <laughs> oh, Mr. President, here's this computer. I want to give you this computer. It's of no use to you. Why not give it to the governor? Why not give it to the king of kings? Would you bring him a motorcycle that had a flat tire and a broken out headlight? You wouldn't do that. Of course not. It would be an insult to the president. Well, here's the million dollar question. Do you bring these types of things to the Lord? That's the test. It's a test you should take when you, you think about the, the worship that you offer to the Lord. Think about a person, a high authority, you acting that way to a person like that, then you just take that. If that person accepts it, then would God accept it? And if an earthly person would reject what you're offering, it's not, not quite right. And in weeks to come, as we look at part two of this message, I'm going to talk more about attitudes and hearts and words and preparations for... Sunday and how we worship or preparations for just coming before the Lord and reading your Bible. And it all, it's, it's not just giving. It has everything to do. I mean, you can come to somebody, you know, you, you want to talk to somebody and you're just not excited about anything. You know, a salesman, whatever, and you just kind of come and bring something and say, hey, hey do you want this? I don't want this. <laughs> no one's going to buy from you if you're like that. So likewise, when you come before the king, you don't want to sing songs that drab face or drab expressions or drab no emotion. You want to be into it because people accept that. And so likewise, that's what God will accept. Well, in weeks to come, I'll, I'll press that more. But God is the one you want to please, right? When you give your gift to the president, you want to please him. So likewise, you want to please the Lord. That's our, that's our aim in our worship to the Lord is to please him. D. James Kennedy has a great insight of what takes place in church service. He said this, Most people think of church as a drama. Where the minister is the chief actor. Kind of looks like that a little bit. You know, you're in the audience. 
where, where the, the, the minister is the chief actor. God is the prompter. So we're just talking about spiritual things here. And ultimately then, the audience, the congregation is the, the critic. But God says, D. James Kennedy says, actually it's different. He says, actually the case is that the congregation is the chief actor. And that the minister is the prompter. And God is the critic. So, picture yourself today. You're all on a stage. And there's one guy in the audience. And that one guy is God. And he's looking at your worship. And he's the one who criticizes and who judges your worship. Will he receive your worship? And that's a test we need to take, right? We need to consider everything we do is for the Lord. I remember hearing of one church that said, God is the most important person in our meeting. Or we today in our church, we flip that around. We say people are the most important. Well, God really is. We need to seek His approval for everything that we do. He's the one that judges our worship. And the, the question on the table is whether or not God is pleased with your worship of Him. God rejected the sacrifices of these priests... Look at the last half of verse 9. With such an offering on your part, will He receive any of you kindly? And obviously the, the answer there is no. He's not going to receive you kindly if you offer up blind, lame, and sick sacrifices. And then in verse 10, He puts forth His disgust with a picture. It's a great picture. He says, Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the gates that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you. What a terrible reality of face. All of your effort, all of your sacrifices, and God says, I'm not pleased with you. I won't accept your sacrifices. I won't accept your offering. And then God says, it would be, be better if somebody came and locked the doors to the church building and threw away the key so that no one would ever enter there again rather than to continue on offering up these types of sacrifices. That's pretty serious stuff, isn't it? But that's the disgust with which God looked upon these priests. And, and you know what? It, it's not even just sacrifices that God was disgusted with. Back in the days of Israel, there were times in which even their songs... I mean, I think about today, primarily, you know, our worship. Yes, we give and yes, we serve. But, you know, primarily we think about worship. We think about songs we sing and prayers we pray. Listen to what Amos 5.23 says. The Lord said, Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not even listen to the sound of your harps. It's as if they are fingernails on a chalkboard. God is saying, get them away. I don't want them. Take them away. Take your harps away. Destroy those instruments because I hate your music. There's a sort of worship that God hates. And when it takes place, the Lord's desires to be stopped. Better to have no worship than false worship, as we say. And you know, I think that just with the whole honor, I don't think the issue is so much of instrumentation um, so much so with uh, lots of the debates today volume I, I think that the key is is honor is the worship truly honoring to the Lord I think that's the bottom line issue that's the issue right here I would say one more key to acceptable worship comes in the first half of verse 9 it's a pleading and treating God's favor look what he says this again is a rhetorical question but now will you not entreat God's favor that He may be gracious to us? You know, at the end of the day, bringing your best isn't going to be worthy enough. I mean, because the best, is, you can always get better than the best. You can always get better. You can always get better. But at the end of the day, true worship comes when you entreat God's favor. That's what it is. And all of our worship, even today in the 21st century, it's entreating God's Favor. That's bottom line where it is. It's coming with a heart. Certainly we give our best, but it's not the sacrifice that does it. Apparently these priests weren't even seeking God's favor. It's a rhetorical question. Will not any of you entreat God's favor that He may be gracious to us? It's like none of you are entreating God's favor. It's like they were thinking the sacrifices were enough. Like you bring the sacrifice, you offer up, and there it goes. 
you know, without any type of, of heart, without any type of prayer, without any type of, of pleading before the Lord. And with that, God wasn't pleased. You know, so don't think that worship is a ritual. Don't, don't even think that it's oh, coming here and bowing your head at the proper time and saying the right words. It is a genuine entreaty to the Lord. As it says here, do not entreat God's favor. He'd be gracious to us. You know, this is the fundamental issue of worship for us today. We constantly ought to be pleading with God that He would be gracious to us. And we have wonderful promises in Christ Jesus that He will be gracious to us. And so fundamental to all our worship is this, this plea to God that He'd be gracious to us in Jesus Christ. And that is the good news of the Gospel, is that though our sacrifice that we bring, they bring, was just a, a lamb, a bull and goats, the, the Scripture is clear that the blood of bulls and goats will never take away sin. But there is one perfect sacrifice, which is far beyond these sacrifices, that we can trust, that we can appeal to. It says, God, we have a perfect sacrifice that we offer, and it is Jesus Christ. And I'm pleading that that is my sacrifice. I'm trusting, Lord, that that is my sacrifice. And as we plead and we trust and we pray and we praise, God accepts that worship. But we've got to take the test. We've got to take the test of the governor and to the king of kings. Well, three practicals, right? Bring your best, take the test. And here's the third one, the last one. God will be blessed. I'm trying to do the rhyming thing here. God will be blessed. I worked a long time to try to get that rhyme. So let's bring your best, take the test. God will be blessed. It was a long time. Anyway, verse 11. For from the rising of the sun even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations and in every place incense is going to be offered to my name. And a grain offering that is pure for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. The Lord was telling the people of Israel that He wasn't a desperate God. If the worship in Israel was rejected, the Lord would simply raise up others who would be able to worship Him. God isn't so desperate to have our worship that His survival depends upon whether or not we worship Him. Oh yes, He is a God who demands worship. And if we don't give it to Him... Someone else will. God will see to it. I mean, look at the promise here. My name will be great. My name will be great among the nations. Now there's some debate about whether that my name is great among the nations, my name will be great, but he's just saying my name will be known. Whether it's known now, whether it's known in the future, God will be worshipped, or as I've put it, God will be blessed. If we're worshipping in some unacceptable manner, God will raise up others to worship Him. And the greatest illustration of this is Palm Sunday. You remember when, uh, when, when Jesus came into Jerusalem on that donkey in fulfillment of the prophecy from Zechariah 9, verse 9? Most of the crowds right, spread their coats in the road to worship this one coming. Others cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. The crowds are going ahead of him and the crowds that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Right? And, and even that song that sometimes sung, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. That's why I don't sing solos here. But anyway, it is just a worship and praise and excitement to the Lord. Here is Hosanna. Here is Messiah. He's coming into Jerusalem. We are worshiping here. He's the King coming mounted on a donkey. And you remember what the Pharisees said? They said, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Stop that song. Stop it. And what do you say? I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. God will be worshipped. God will be blessed. If we fail in our worship, God will raise up others who will. The name of the Lord will be magnified. It will be great. It will be lifted up. It will be exalted. Now, verse 11 prophesies, I believe, of a time in which the worship of God will go far beyond the borders of Israel. At this time in the history of of the world, most of the worship of the true God was in Israel, though certainly there were foreigners who had accepted the Lord and believed in Him. Nineveh had a bunch of believers up there. Remember Naaman? Remember the widow at Nain? 
You know, all these, you know, there were some, gen- but, it, but it wasn't spread abroad nearly as much as it is today. It says, from the rising of the sun way from the east to its setting way in the west, my name will be great among the nations. From east to west, the name of the Lord will be known and worshipped. And I believe these words have been fulfilled today. All across this globe, there are worshippers of the true God, Jesus Christ. You can go almost to any country and find some pocket of people worshiping the Lord. Now, I know that there are some tribes that have not been reached yet. And I know that there are some Muslim nations where Christians are pretty much tried to suppress and get it out. But still yet, you think about the vast majority of the world. I think even maybe a fifth of the world claims to be Christians. So that's somehow the name of Christ has gone through all the globe And I think that's where verse 11 has been fulfilled. He's going to say, my name is going to be great. I am going to be worshipped. Israel, even if you miss it, it's still going to really come to me throughout all the world. And this has come to us. Come to Rockford in 2007. And we worship because of this, of God making sure that His name would be great among the nations. And we worship Him because of this prophecy. Right? And we worship Christ today because of this. Israel was wrong in their worship and He brought it to the world. They rejected their Messiah. Christ died. The salvation then has gone to the world. And in that we can rejoice. And really, as I said at the beginning of our message, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning. And it's really it's a fruit of this right here. Is that Christ's name has come to us and that's what we worship. And, and the Lord Jesus told us of how it is that we need to worship, right? Remember on that last night before He's betrayed, He took the bread and He said, hey, do this as often as you drink it as remembrance of Me. And He says you should do it and do it and do it until He comes again. And the cup He took is the new covenant in His blood. Right? That's the cup that we have, that we rejoice that the fact that that's our perfect sacrifice. We don't have to rely upon animals and bulls and goats. We can rely upon the perfect Spotless Lamb of God. And so I have you do right now is even bow your head, think upon these things, think about your worship, think upon honor given to the Lord. Will have Andy come up and lead us in some songs. We pass the bread and pass the cup. I just have you even examine your heart right now as uh, 1 Corinthians 11 exhorts us to uh, eat and drink in a, in a worthy manner, examining our lives, examining our hearts before the Lord. Are we giving God our best? Are we passing the test? Do we realize in our heart of hearts that God will be blessed? It's a time of great joy. It's a time of great um, rejoicing. That's through the blood of Christ we can plead His mercy and His grace. He'd be kind to us. And so I pray, Lord, this morning, as we looked at this Old Testament example of people who refused to honor You, I pray that this morning we would be people who would honor You. We might not be thankless people, but we would be thankful people. We might not be people who forget, but we might be people who remember the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Lord, that's our hope. Our hope is in Your loving kindness. Our hope is in the salvation provided for through Jesus. And I pray as we reflect upon the cross with these songs, the bread that touches our lips and our tongue, the juice that flows down our, our throat, God, may these in real tangible ways cause us to delight and touch and taste You. You've told us to do this and we do this in, in worship to You. And I would pray, Lord, if there are, are those here who aren't believing in You, who have hated You and despised You, who have neglected You, I pray you'd convict them of their sins today. May they cry out to, to the Savior. I pray for the rest of us. May this be a time of true communion with you. May we rejoice in the things that you've done for us and for our souls. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. If you take the insert that was in your bulletin on the back side, you'll find the words to the songs we're going to sing. The Holy Heart, on the back of your insert there.
the Son of God never again the holy sacrifice for me he was forsaken afflicted and alone my sin Be 